This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, this is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesdays with Trey. Uh, most people currently serving prison sentences will be released at some point, even those serving what you may consider to be lengthy sentences uh, for what you may consider to be and what I used to prosecute, um, which are generally considered to be violent crimes. So the question then becomes what happens when they are released? Their debt to society is paid. Uh, you probably have expectations for what they will do post-incarceration. They certainly uh, have expectations or hopes or dreams. But how do you get a job? How do you get a job to meet your financial or familial or society societal obligations? Who will give these men and women primarily men, but also women, who will give them a chance, who will offer them work, um, who is going to help reacclimate or relearn uh, the hard and soft skills that you need uh, to make it. Uh, there are some folks who began serving prison sentences before there were iPhones, before maybe even before there was the internet. So how are you going to make it? Well, I guess, People like Amy Bartz, that's who she runs a business and her employees are formerly incarcerated people who want to write a different chapter in their lives, especially a different ending chapter. So, Amy, um, welcome. And thank you. Tell me what I got wrong and tell me what got you involved in reentry programs, which is what I call this. But you may call it something else. No, that's right. That's exactly what I call it. I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation with you. And I think a good way to get it started to kick off is for me to talk a little bit about um, to talk a little bit about when I first got into the field of reentry. So I spent my entire professional world working in the field of reentry. I left college specifically wanting to work uh, with people coming out of prison. Um, it was an unlikely choice, I think, for somebody like me, who I feel like had a privileged background and no um, no experience um, or connections to to the to the the world of incarceration, prison, criminal lifestyles. Um, but nonetheless, that's what I wanted to do, and I've always wanted to do, and have not not veered off course. But when I got into the field, I was very um, uh, I was very idealistic. I had big hopes and dreams, and my first job out of college was working for a reentry organization, and we were very much, this was in 2006, um, this was very much a, re, a time where reentry organizations were um, sort of synonymous with sort of charitable, charitable kinds of services. So think bus passes and backpacks, food pantries, referrals to maybe places to stay for the night. Um, and sometimes, you know, organizations would dabble in, you know, um, 
interviewing classes, uh, helping people with resumes, maybe sometimes giving a list of sort of felon friendly employers. But um, so that was the world that I came out of college and into this sort of reentry service um, landscape. And I worked that job for three years and I really felt like I was doing nothing to significantly have an impact on anyone's life. And um, it's not that I didn't find it rewarding because in some aspects it was very rewarding. Um, but it also felt like it was self-serving, I think, because I would give these resources to people. And then I just remember, you know, not just me, you know, my colleagues as well, we would say, good, good luck. Right. We would hand over the bag or the papers and we would say, you know, good luck. Um, you know, and after a while you knew that that's all it was. It was just, it was empty. And I got really disillusioned with the idea that, you know, we could fundamentally help people change life trajectories through these sort of light touch services. And I felt like they they were fronting, you know, they were a front for doing good work, but fundamentally they weren't really doing anything to change um, and to truly help. And I think I, yeah, I just got disillusioned with that and I could have quit and I could have decided to do something else. And I really, I think at that time decided um, instead to kind of dig in and think about how we could be doing things differently in the field of reentry. And so I've been working on the project that the company that I run now, a nonprofit that also has a social enterprise for 11 years. And that, um, the it's called turn 90 and turn 90 was born out of that experience. And the idea that we should be, um, that we should be reframing the way that reentry services are provided. And if we fundamentally want to help people, uh, start a new life. And like you said, rewrite that ending chapter that we have to do so much more than we're currently doing. And we have to get real and realistic about what it's truly going to take to help somebody and bus passes and backpacks and referrals are just not going to do it. All right. Speaking of the word real, and I'm going to only use myself as an example, because I think most of our listeners are uh, much better people than I am and much more compassionate and don't like view the world solely through their own myopia. But I am correct. I think you tell me if I'm wrong. The overwhelming majority of people who are currently incarcerated are going to be out at some right. point. Mm -hmm. So right. This is not a conversation about truth and sentencing. It is not a conversation about whether judges should give more or less time. It is the reality of where we are. Mm -hmm. Most people who are currently incarcerated are going to be out. Mm -hmm. The That's question right. is, are they at all well equipped when that day comes? Mm -hmm. Right. And I am guessing uh, you know, Brian Sterling is a mutual friend of ours. I have other people, other friends that are in that line of work. Um, despite their best efforts, I'm, I'm guessing that the prisons are just not set up or currently not funded mm -hmm. or equipped to help right. with these reentry programs. Right. It is uh, it is an incredibly difficult field. I have so much respect for folks like Brian who are, um, you know, in the thick of it and are really doing their very best and I think have made significant strides, but it, yeah, it's really tough. It's going to take more than just, uh, you know, GED classes in a prison, you know, everything that Brian's done has been helpful, but it's just going to take more as a community, as employers, as neighbors, as churchgoers, right. As, as people in the community, we also have, a responsibility to help. That's, that's how I feel about it. It's not going to work if we all don't participate. And one of the ways that we ask people to participate is to consider hiring 
people out of prison and not somebody that has, that we have not taken a chance on first because we hire all the guys that we work with for at least four months before we would make a referral to a company, another company. And, and, and I didn't start the business that way. So the way that I started was through more of a therapeutic lens. So I got real familiar with a lot of research on recidivism and approached it from a therapeutic position and um, only grew the business years later when I recognized that, um, that, well, there was, there was multiple reasons. One was employers we were having a very difficult time finding employers to step up, but it seemed to be that once we were employing them first, it was an easier ask to say, Hey, I'm putting my money where my mouth is one, two, we sent better employees to them when we employed them first. So we were having challenges with employment retention and employment success. And when we launched our own business and actually hired people first, we had better results with the companies we were hiring, uh, sending people to. And therefore, we've never had a big portfolio of companies we've worked with because the same companies tend to hire our guys over and over and over again, um, really demonstrating that, that, that the guys that we work with end up being great employees. We're going to pause right there. More of my interview with Amy Barch next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. All right. The reason I'm writing is because something entered my head. All right. You touched on the basics, which, you know, I guess if we thought about it, you need transportation to a job interview. You need a suit. You need interview skills. Those things we probably get our heads around. You need training for certain types of jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, But you also need what I mean, I call soft skills. I mean, Lots yeah. of people have seen Shawshank Redemption. I am not offering that as as uh, any glimpse of the real world, but the image of Morgan Freeman's character mm-hmm. continually asking permission to go to the men's room because it mm-hmm. is all that he was accustomed to. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had to ask it. So I- I'm guessing what you do, yeah, we got to teach you a trade, but we also have to teach you soft skills. When you took me on a virtual tour, yeah, I was stunned at, at like the classes of how you have to, I don't want to say retrain people, but retrain people. Right. Yes. So it's very, so super interesting. So uh, when I first started this, I actually didn't focus on employment at all. Employment, even now we run a social enterprise, but employment is almost like a bait and switch. It's the mechanism by which we get access to the the men that we work with over sustained periods of time and opportunities to engage them in pro-social relationships. So we actually run a business so that it's a, um, you know, it's just a mechanism. It's just a vehicle. The employment itself is not as important as what happens when we're with people all day long. So it's the behavioral influences of 
being around pro-social people and us using techniques, sort of scientifically proven techniques to nudge behavior in a certain direction and hold people accountable to uh, real life expectations of legal living. So that's that's part of it that I found is very interesting over the years. Most people think that we're using employment directly as an intervention to reduce criminal behavior. And really, we're not um, not as clear cut as that. We really use it more as an incentive to engage with us over long periods of time so we can help people learn the skills like the one that Dion taught you when you came to that virtual tour. Um, I think he walked you through managing aggression. I think is the skill that he taught you. So if you go and really look at the literature on the um, risk factors that correlate to recidivism, the top few are around um, thinking and attitude, personality and values, um, and then friends as well. And and the personality thinking, like those things, they, they cluster together and they're the primary predictors of recidivism. So while employment is also lack of attachment to employment is a predictor of recidivism, it's not as strong um, and it doesn't correlate all the time. So, for example, a program might reduce recidivism, but not improve employment or a program might improve employment, but not reduce recidivism. So they don't always go together, which is very interesting. And most people think they're synonymous, that one would um, go with the other. Now, folks that change their thinking and adopt more pro-social values and um, understand how to manage impulse control and um, have developed resiliency, those things then correlate to success at, on, at employment which then can correlate to recidivism. So hopefully I didn't confuse you there, but basically all to say is that those skills that we teach in class are actually the fundamental piece of the program that works to help influence behavior change. And the work is the mechanism by which we both engage a hard to re reach population and spend significant periods of time with them, given that they're with us 40 hours a week. So that's, that's a really different way of approaching recidivism reduction and reentry. Um, that most people don't know because we don't sit down and have a chat like this for an hour. Um, you know, usually I meet with them, talk, you know, walk them around the center. They see social enterprise and the link is made that we are reducing recidivism through work. I only had probably 10 minutes around Dion, but just but listening to him and looking at what was on the wall and what I would call a classroom. But y'all may call it a workroom or a boardroom classroom. Mm hmm. I mean, identifying uh, the triggers. I mean, I needed to hear it, quite frankly, Amy. So I bring fewer broken golf clubs home from the golf course. I don't. I'm. I don't need to hear it uh, to not uh, mm -hmm. reoffend. But we all mm -hmm. kind of could learn what our triggers are and how to undo it. If I heard you correctly, the first time we met, you actually choose people. I don't want to say the tougher cases, but people with the more challenging That's criminal right. histories. That's right. You, right. you so, choose that group. Right. Yeah. So the one of the best practices in the field of reentry is that you have a higher chance of reducing recidivism if you work with folks that have a higher risk of it. Right. It just makes sense. So if you have someone who is not very risky and is likely not to go back based on a variety of different risk factors, then, um, you know, you're not going to reduce it by much. 
if somebody only has a few risk factors and a 15% chance of going back to prison, even if you do a great job with them, you might only get it down to 10%, where most of our guys are between about 50 to 75% chance of going back, if not higher. We don't take really, I don't think we take anyone less than 55%. So 55 is sort of our baseline. Um, so if you're up in those ranges, you can make a really big impact in terms of bringing down someone's risk. So working with folks who are at the higher risk of rearrest is a best practice uh, in the field. Um, that's one of them. The second one is to address what are called criminogenic risk factors. And those are the risk factors that I mentioned earlier that predict criminal recidivism. So, um, some people think that some people confuse non-risk factors um, as risk factors. Um, so um, self-esteem, for example, self-esteem is not a criminogenic risk factor. It's not a predictor of criminal behavior. Um, so you might increase someone's self-esteem, but not address their other risk factors. And you might just have somebody who has the same risk of committing more crimes, but they have a, self, uh, a healthy self-esteem. Right. Or you so you, you might have a happier uh, person, but they're going to commit crimes at the same rate. Or um, sometimes uh, you can also look at it from the health standpoint or physical. Uh, physical um, health is not a criminal risk factor. So somebody who exercises a lot um, is not going to have reduced. It's not going to reduce their risk of recidivism. So if you decide you're going to run an exercise program for folks in prison, and the idea is that through exercise you're going to reduce recidivism, it doesn't uh, theoretically make sense nor scientifically. There's no empirical data that suggests that that could happen. So um, you might just have uh, a person who has the same risk of reoffending, but they're just in a lot better shape. All right. Well, you told me something that I did not know, which is why I wanted you on because you're an expert and I'm not. I would have thought self-esteem played some role and mm -hmm. whether or not someone would reoffend. So if your goal is not simply healthier uh, reoffenders who have a higher self-esteem, which I would mm -hmm. hope would not be anyone's goal. Right. What 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 do you look for? What are those factors that say this person is significantly at risk for reoffending? Because the way I look at it, reoffending sounds however it sounds, but in a lot of these crimes, that means there's another victim. So for right. folks who look at it from that perspective, like you would think a former prosecutor would, right. you want to, you, you don't want their lives ruined by going to prison, but you also don't want, want more victims. So right. what gets us there? Right. Well, so I let, before I, I talked about what, what gets us there, I think that's why I push so hard on folks in my field and the field in general. One of my goals is to elevate um, to elevate evidence based practices in my field, because like you just said, it's so important. I feel like typically reentry services are sort of relegated into these sort of like I said, charity based services or social services like we're like we're a soup kitchen. When really we are working in public safety um, and it's critical work and we should know what we're doing. It should be based on science um, and we should be trained and there should be standards for the kinds of services that we deliver because it's truly um, life and death. It's 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 a, it's really they're really, yeah, public safety services. And so we we meaning people that are delivering reentry services should understand what the science says and make sure that you're doing things that that can that can that can work right um so there are there are eight um there are eight risk factors that eight sort of eight eight buckets i would say you can say um that are 
that are called criminogenic risk factors. So these are risk factors. The fancy word is criminogenic. It just means that they predict risk. They predict the likelihood that someone someone um, will continue to commit crimes. One is um, static. So the first one is a past history of criminal behavior. So it's static, meaning that nothing that I do can change that. So if somebody has five felony convictions before they get to me, I can't change their five felony convictions. It's a static risk factor. Being male is a static risk factor. Age can be a static risk factor. So um, it doesn't make sense to try to target static risk factors. You want to target the dynamic risk factors. And so there are seven dynamic risk factors that correlate to reoffending. And the first couple I already talked about, one is called antisocial personality pattern. Um, it doesn't have to be a diagnosable condition. It just means that there's past behavior that's indicative of um, impulsive behavior, aggressive behavior, sort of sometimes cold, um, not empathetic, um, certain personality traits that um, low frustration tolerance is another being sort of self-serving, always thinking about yourself. So there's certain personality traits and you can, you can assess for those. Um, the, another big predictor of criminal risk is antisocial thinking, attitudes and values. For example, you know, the system owes me or, you know, every police officer is corrupt or no one's ever helped me before. Why should I help anybody else? or lots of different um, attitudes that also go in with thinking patterns, which also are supported by values. And so um, that's a really big risk factor. When people say things to you, when you assess them or spend time with them and they say things um, like, I mean, hey, you know, if someone leaves it out, I'm gonna take it, that's on them. They should have watched their stuff. Right. You can you can hear it. You can pick up on it. So that's a really big risk factor that predicts criminal behavior. Right. How we think is generally leads into what we do. All right. So when I heard you describe some of those characteristics, I had this little phrase go through my mind because I dabbled in psychology until I ran into testing and measurement and couldn't pass that class. There's something called the dark triad, which, you know, we want to think about it. Think Ted Bundy, I guess. It's, right. That to me, I would just want to give up. I would just want to say, well, I, I can't, I can't fix that. I mean, that it's either in the genes or right, I, just, right, right. I can't, but not only, I mean, you, you actually go looking Right. Well, that, I mean, Ted Bundy, you're really talking about like a sociopath. We're really, even though it's an antisocial personality pattern, it sounds like it, it's not. It just means it doesn't have to, it's not anything diagnosed. It's not a sociopath. It's just a pattern of behavior that indicates things like aggressive and impulsive behavior over time. And generally it started young and caused disruptions in school or caused disruptions at home. Um, so, and, and not all the guys that we have, that we, that we work with have it, but typically most of the guys we work with have impulsivity and low frustration issues and aggression, usually those three things. So, um, so what we do is that we, because we're very clear on who we work with and we understand that almost everybody that we work with ha struggles in those areas, doesn't make them a bad person. I work with wonderful people, wonderful people. We all struggle. Like you just said, your golf clubs, right? Like you throwing a, you know, your golf clubs doesn't make you a bad person. 
Um, so we work a lot on impulse, impulse control in our classes. We help the guys while they're at work, understand, um, imp- help them uh, manage impulse control by um, requiring that if they want to take time off from work, they need to ask us for 48 hours in advance. That is a way to help somebody develop impulse control. And then if they don't, they, we have a point system. We're on a token economy. They have a point system. They get an unexcused absence and they lose their points for the day. And then they have to manage frustration around that. And there's a frustration tolerance lesson in that. So we teach, we teach coping skills in class to um, manage these situations. And then we sort of help them work through them in real life contacts as their employer. So it's very tied in together. We work a lot on the thinking attitudes and values in um, activities in class where people think about situations that cause them problems, usually things that led them to incarceration. And then they track their thinking that led into the situation. And then we role play it out and we ask them to uh, list different thoughts they could have had in that situation. And they'll role play it out with their old thinking. They'll switch into their new thinking and then they'll have a new action. And we do a lot of role. We probably do role playing every day and they're in classes every day. So we, we deliver what are called cognitive behavioral therapy classes. That was what Dion was showing you the other day in my research way back when, when I first got into the field and I was, you know, a little disillusioned about those charity services. And it was sort of the age old, like there's gotta be a better way. I started doing a lot of research. And what I found was that cognitive behavioral therapy sort of stands out as the intervention that's the most effective at helping people change at an individual level. Now, remember, our entire conversation here is based on individual level change and reducing recidivism at individual levels. There's other ways to reduce it at more macro levels that, you know, that's just not my world. But an individual level reducing recidivism intervention that's most effective is cognitive behavioral therapy. And so, like I said, I built a business around bringing that to people because you ask yourself, okay, if CBT is so effective, how do you bring that to a reentry population? When folks get out, they have too many, too many responsibilities and and barriers to just attending classes. Like they, most of us, you know, this is lovely when the, you know, we can go to therapy, you know, for our one or two nights a week, like that's not happening with this group. And so the entire business model was built out around how can you deliver intensive and high quality therapeutic services in a safe environment to people coming out of prison. And that's, that's why we built the business. And it was to address those two top criminogenic needs the personality pattern and the thinking. All right. Because my mom and my wife both listened to this podcast, I want to be very, very clear. That was a hypothetical I was giving about uh, golf clubs. <laughs> when, they, when they come home broken, it is simply that I dropped them in the parking lot. I, I don't want either one of them. All right. I want to ask you a couple of questions about yourself, and then I will okay. finish up by asking you about, I don't want to assume it's all men, but it was all men when I went on a yeah. virtual tour. Yeah, about, yeah, we were. Yeah, it was only men. All right. So for yourself, mm-hmm. you have taken uh, what many people would consider to be among the most challenging career choices. Probably. And even within that, you have decided that you will intentionally go after the most challenging within that challenging subset. Right. How do you judge success and how do you not get disillusioned? 
Before I answer your question about judging success, I would just like to put an addendum that we started a screen printing business. People ask me, it's a common question to ask why screen printing? We just fell into it. Someone, you know, I knew somebody who knew somebody who would get the equipment, et cetera. And we've been having a lot of problems scaling the screen printing business. Uh, So we opened a second location in Columbia, as you know, and, you know, we have had a ton of implementation issues and not on the therapeutic side programs working great changes happening. You saw Dion. It's awesome. The business has been a real struggle to scale. And so I was in my hometown in Virginia a couple of weeks ago. And my dad has been bought, you know, telling me, you gotta, you gotta meet my friend, Dave, you gotta meet my friend, Dave can, you know, he runs, he runs the, he got business of the year. I'm like, Oh my gosh, dad. Okay. Uh, so I finally, you know, I relented and, um, you know, did my dad a favor and I went to go see Dave Kent and, um, you know, and he sits down with me and it was very lovely. Um, he spent two hours of his time trying to help walk through, you know, some of the challenges we've been having. And he said, listen, Amy, I've run two other businesses. This is the hardest business I've ever run. There's 98 steps in the production process alone. I can't believe that you're, he's like, remind me again what you're doing. And I said, well, we all work with all trainees. The people that run my print shop are themselves formerly incarcerated who I've hired on now to supervise them. Everybody leaves within six months because that's the model. Um, and he said exactly what you said. So you've chosen to work with you know people coming out of prison and also chose one of the most difficult manufacturing you know businesses to get into. And so anyway, I would just like to, to put the addendum onto your statement that it's even worse than you think, Trey. And I had no idea until two weeks ago. I just sat there with my mouth open. I was like, oh my God, I'm in so, so deep. So I will amend it to also add in the mo- one of the most challenging types of business <laughs> you business. possibly run. I know, okay. but I didn't know that though. I didn't, and that was not intentional. That was just life, just playing a funny joke on me. But success, um, yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I have this vision. I have this vision of creating a model that can be replicated across the country or, I mean, in other states that that provides deep therapeutic and workforce development services to men. So I just, I feel like as a society and as a community, like we can do better. And I just want to put forward an example. This is just one way that we can do better. So opening Columbia was huge because before that, I think the pushback, you know, to the extent there was pushback was like, you know, I sort of this unicorn program down in Charleston and who knows if it can be replicated. Well, I used to teach all the classes and people used to say, yeah, but who's going to teach your classes? Well, now I have two people teaching classes, you know? So, you know, I think success for me is, is watching this grow in other places independent of myself. I wouldn't have said that was six, a, a couple years ago, I would have given you a different answer. But today I think seeing this be um, embraced in other communities run by guys coming out of prison that I personally love and care about and have invested in and seeing, seeing it grow. And I don't have to be there. Like I'm not in Columbia today and it's going, you know, and to me that's success because ultimately you know, I want this company to, to be well beyond me. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. All right. I'm a potential employer and I listen and I think, you know what? Number one, she's very impressive. Number two, what she's trying to do. I wholeheartedly endorse. I got a choice between hiring someone with that background versus not with that background. 
and I'm worried about civil liability or I'm worried about this or I'm worried about that. How do you make the case that your guys, once they get through with you, are every bit as employable as anyone else they're considering? You know, Trey, I think, you know, my argument is that they're more employable. I have 50% of my staff is guys that I've worked with uh, and they're awesome. And they, and I know what they can do. Uh, you know, 98% of our guys stay on their job for 30 days or more. I think 96 stay on for 90 days or more. We just have really high retention rates for the guys that get all the way through. Now we work with a pretty big churn. We're just, we're, we're a massive vetting organization for companies that are interested in exploring a new workforce, which I think companies are having to do now. It's not as much of an option. People are really needing to look at where to find, you know, labor, um, and I think we're the best vet in town. You know, I don't know anybody else who's doing the level of quality and depth of services that we are with people out of prison. And I think if there's any inkling that a company wants to explore it, come by and see what we do. Take a tour, meet some of the guys and take a chance on one person and see how it goes. Like I said, in Charleston, where we've been operating the longest, we don't need to do a lot of workforce development here because in terms of job partners, because we work with the same people because they hire our guys over and over again. Well, I will say this. When I went on the virtual tour at first, I thought, well, of course, because you were so good about carrying your phone around. You know how to use that thing called. Is it FaceTime? Is that yeah. what they call it? You yeah, know how right. to do that. I don't. And you were so good about it. And I thought, well, these these guys they probably know that I was a former prosecutor. So of course they're not going to like look up and talk to me for 30 minutes. And then I thought, well, no, 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 it's not that. They know that I was a Republican member of Congress. Of course they're not going to talk to me. Nobody would talk to me. <laughs> and then it dawned on me at the end, Amy, they're not talking because they're working. Right. They, oh, yeah, actually, they, had no, they had no idea who you were. Well, thank God they did <laughs> not. But I don't think it would have mattered. Because right, they, no, no, it, won't, it wouldn't them. matter love what they were doing and they were oh, yeah. no, it conscientious about the product. It was, yeah. it's stunning. Look, I know former prosecutors are probably not the group that is most supportive. Uh, well, actually I take that back. You'd be surprised when you paid your debt to society and you are expected to move on. I don't know how you can move on if you are not mm -hmm. equipped in certain ways. And the longer you were incarcerated, the uh -huh. steeper the learning curve. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think so, that's one of the things that you and I talked about, Trey, is that you know, there's a lot of, of conversation on needing solutions and we have, and we have one, we've built one, you know, and I think that's, it's, it's, it, we've come far enough, you know, for the longest time we had a pilot. Well, now we have two. So we're ready. And I hope that, I hope that our timing is right. All right. You've convinced me that running a print shop is the hardest thing in the world. So, <laughs> I, so have you ever thought about doing something easier, like uh, splitting an atom or a building yeah. a nuclear submarine or something easier than what I saw? I am so glad that you asked me that um, because yes, we are we are looking to uh, expand into upstate South Carolina uh, for a third location, and I believe that that's going to make us the first. Organi re-entry organization that has a statewide presence. So we'll be in the low country, the Midlands and the upstate. And we are not going to be opening another print shop. 
Uh, we want to do something different. And the rate of scale is really limited by a few factors. And I'm hoping we might be able to check both of those off at the same time. If we can find a company who's interested in coming on board with us as a real partner in both the job placement and also the in-house work training, who maybe would want to outsource work to us, give us a contract, we would buy the equipment, train uh, the guys that we work with on the equipment, and then we could be a pipeline into their company. So I'm hoping that we could eventually find a partner like that. That's my goal. Um, if we can't, you know, we'll, we'll figure out something else. My other idea is to do a production model where we outsource work from companies and we would do sort of non-essential work uh, for companies. I mean, we have a labor force and companies struggle to find labor. So I think we can find, I think we can make a deal. And I see other social enterprises across the country that have these sort of production models, these outsourced production models, like light assembly, kitting, other um, sort of light manufacturing. And I think that could be a really good fit for us. All right. For folks that are listening and thinking, you know, I never really thought about it before, but yeah, um, have to have a plan for reacclimating people once they um, are no longer incarcerated. Really impressed with Amy and her background and her passion and commitment. I'd be interested in talking to her about seeing whether or not there's a mutual opportunity, how they get in touch with you. You can find me on the we have a website that has a staff page. My info is there. It's uh, turn90.com and it's spelled out T-U-R-N-N-I-N-E-T-Y.com. And my email is amy at turn90.com. Again, spelled out. And yeah, shoot me an email. I'd love to talk to, to anybody who's interested in helping partnering. Um, obviously, we're a 501c3, so people want to donate. If people want to order screen printing, uh, custom screen printing merchandise from us, we would love to print from you for you. We don't just print here locally. We can ship it. And also would love to talk to any employers that are interested in getting some great employees. That's right. You're a business. So right. you're, looking, you're looking for customers. You're looking That's for right. partners. That's right. There's a, there's a lot of ways that, that people can get involved. What have I not asked you that a really highly skilled questioner hmm. who actually knows how to run a podcast would ask you? I think you got it, Trey. I think you covered it. We got locations in Charleston, Columbia, and like I said, we're heading to the upstate. So, you know, we're in the South, but hopefully coming, coming, coming up, you know, coming out of South Carolina. So I think people that are running reentry programs that are interested in the evidence, I think if people want to come and tour, our doors are open. And that's not just for folks that are in the business community. I talked to a lot of other people around the country that are doing reentry as well. Again, like I said, one of my goals is to really elevate the field and, and help other people out understanding how to provide a depth of service to this population. So I think you got it. You covered it. Well, um, you already know two things, but our viewers do not, uh, or they may. I, I live in the upstate. Uh, it is uh, fast growing. Uh, there's a lot of stuff happening up here. So I am hopeful that somebody will see you as either a supplier or a partner or something. And the other thing that I know I told you, but I'm going to tell other folks when I was a prosecutor, you know, you actually develop a relationship depending on what type of crime it is with the people that you're prosecuting, particularly if they are, are helpful or they accept responsibility. And one of the more common requests I got is when I finish my sentence and I need a job, will you give me a recommendation? And I said, well, let's see how you do. I mean, let's see how you do with disciplinaries. You come find me. And I was stunned at the number of guys 
who came to the DA's office or tracked me down and said, okay, I did what I said I would do. Will you? Mm. The, the desire to write a different closing chapter, we mm-hmm. cannot control what we have already done, but the mm-hmm. desire to write a different closing chapter is strong mm-hmm. and, and you need a chance and particularly yeah, people do. of faith supposed to be a religion of second chances and third chances and fourth chances. So mm-hmm. thank you for being willing to do it. I couldn't, I couldn't even run the business from what I saw on your FaceTime. I, I couldn't <laughs> do it. And, and I, and I wouldn't be there to approve their request for leave. Cause I'd be on the golf course. So I, I would be terrible, <laughs> I got you covered. but thank God for people like you. And uh, I hope you'll come back and give us an update and I hope it's all no, good. I appreciate news. it. Thank you so much for featuring, featuring me, featuring turn 90 and thereby featuring all the men that I work for. for. I really appreciate Fantastic. it. Thank yeah. you. Sounds you good. take Thanks care. Thanks so much, Trey. Okay. Yes, Bye-bye. ma'am. Bye-bye. Okay. And thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next week. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.